Hello everyone, welcome to Bread. I know there is a few new faces here. You're very welcome. It's great to have you. My name's Ed. I lead the church with my wife Hannah. And um, you are privileged because I um, have so far told a few people this, but now I'm going to tell everyone this, which means that it's out there and you're going to have to hold me to it. But I have agreed to do the stupid marathon. <laughs> yeah, I know. As you can tell, I am, though, a professional runner, and uh, I will find it very easy. If you'd like to join me, you won't regret it, will we? We will not regret it. Um, we've got six months, more than six months. Imagine telling your grandchildren, I did a marathon. You can only do that if you, well, you could just tell them, they won't check. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, I'm just saying that. Good. Uh, this is um, the end of the summer, really, and this is the final of our series about the life of bread. We've kind of been covering the main things that we feel like uh, all churches are kind of supposed to do because Jesus tells us about them and does them. And uh, this is about community. And then after this week, we have, as Alice said, a uh, baptism service in a couple of weeks' time. And then we're sort of launching everything for the fall. So we will be launching city groups and Alpha, as you heard about, and prayer training and various things. Um, but I'll tell you a little bit more about those in a minute. So, um, community. Now, in my experience, particularly millennial and sort of Gen Z type people, particularly in urban places like LA, think a lot and really care a lot about community. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, and I'm gonna try and uh, go through that because they are interested in community and they do want it and they crave it. And I think there are good reasons for this. Firstly, um, first and foremost, we crave community because it's what we're made for. So whenever we don't have it, we instinctively thirst for it. Because to be part of community is part of our God-given divine DNA. Before the beginning of time, there was God, existing uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three distinct persons in community, loving each other. And throughout the Bible, we read that, one, Jesus did nothing without his Father, that the Spirit points to Jesus, is sent by God and reveals the Godhead, and uh, the Godhead is happy for his whole fullness to dwell in Jesus. So, really, the Godhead, Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are doing nothing without each other all the time in community. And we are made in the image of God. So we are called to do everything with everyone else all the time as well. But it's not in some sort of esoteric spiritual way, the way some people might say that, you know, everyone's my brother man. The whole universe is my brother man. It's not, we are not sort of independent spiritual spirits floating around in the ether. We are, of course, bodily people. And having bodies, we are supposed to interact with each other bodily and physically. Our bodies are good, despite what some people may have been told growing up in particularly strict Christian places, uh, our bodies are good, and they are godly. And God is such a fan of bodies, in fact, that he decided to take one on himself and become flesh because bodiliness enables him to meet us exactly as we are and exactly in the way that we can relate to and to visit us with his grace and beauty and redemption. And so, 
for us as bodily people, if we are also going to receive grace from one another, and if we are going to give it to one another, our bodies have got to be involved. So when someone talks to you and they look you in the eye, it feels great. When someone gives you a big bear hug or taps you on the shoulder, or if you're British and repressed like me, a firm handshake, it feels good because we are experiencing something of the bodily physical community that we are made for. So we're made for it, it's physical and bodily, and it is diverse by its nature. Now, you won't have ever thought this, but I'm going to let you into a little secret that I've thought this. You won't have done this. I've done this. Now and again, I've thought, I'm slightly bored of my friends, of my really... You wouldn't have thought this. I've thought this. I'm slight... It's not like I... You know, they are my greatest, longest-serving friends, but the thing is, we talk about the same things, we have the same beliefs, we have the same experiences of life, and I'm a bit bored of them. You would never have thought that. I'm just letting you know, because I'm good at hum humble things. Anyway... I've thought, and th but there is a reason that people can feel that, and it's because we're actually built for a whole diversity of relationships. Now, I am not saying that we shouldn't have relationships with people like us. We definitely should have people, relationships with people like us. They're going to be the easiest relationships, and the ones that probably our best friends will be quite like that. But there is something in us that wants for more diversity, for people who are different to us even though it's going to be a lot more work. And the reason for this is because that is how it has been set up since the beginning. So in creation, when God creates Adam, this is the only time where he says that what he has created is not good. Every other day there is the frame, he looks at it and he sees that it is good. When he creates Adam, he says it's not good, and it's not good because Adam is alone. So consider the person that he creates to um, stop things not being good and things being actually very good. The one time it says it's very good, excellent in every way. The person he creates for Adam so that he is not alone is not another Adam. It's not a bro who he already understands and he kind of, I already I know everything about you because you're me. He doesn't do that. He creates, and please don't hear this the wrong way, he creates someone mysterious, Eve. Unlike Adam, difficult to get to know, or at least it's going to take some work to get to know them because they might see things in a different way, they might experience things in a different way, and they are different. Now, leaving aside all the historical issues um, around Genesis, um, you can have your opinion of those, I have my opinion, mine's right, yours is wrong. Uh, but anyway, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> and leaving aside issues of sex and gender, which this is not really about, what the author is conveying is that the whole of us, the whole of humanity, every single one of us, is necessary to fully reflect what God is like. We do not do it individually, and we are not supposed to be alone on our own little island. We are all in it together as God's people. And our richness of community will only really be found when we are experiencing the diversity of the image of God, i.e. everyone else. Get it? Good. So we're made for it, and it's why from time to time, or a lot of the time, we really crave it. But it's not always easy to achieve, is it? And this is from both the fact 
I just, I saw that banner. You can't see this, but I saw that banner just slowly falling over. <laughs> it's not always too easy to achieve. External factors affect it, and internal factors affect it. Now, I don't want to be down on smartphones and social media. I feel like there's this growing tide of people being really down on social media in, in particular, and basically it's going to destroy the whole of humanity. Um, now, obviously, there's lots of things that are wrong about social media, but I seem to remember the same things were said about watching TV when I was a kid, and definitely video games. It's somehow going to eat all the children, and we're, you know, the whole of thing apocalypse will happen, and I don't think that's happened yet. Of course, smartphones, social media, just like TV and video games, have the potential to cause horribly detrimental effects to people. But in and of themselves, they're probably value neutral, aren't they? The way we treat them is what either gives them positive value or negative value. That said, I would be naive not to admit that um, Instachat, is that what it's called? Uh, whatever, <laughs> that was a joke. Uh, I know it's called Instagram. I know it's called Snapchat. I'm not that old. Anyway, Instachat it can promote the opposites of the bodily, physical community that we're all made for. We can know everything about someone. We can follow them around the world. We can see their food. We can know the color of their toothbrush holder in their second bathroom and also know that we will never, ever speak a word to that person and we will definitely never, ever see them in a physical form. And increasingly, I think we are doing this with the people we do know. In fact, even the people we would call our friends, do we really need to call them? We could just see what they're doing all the time. And of course, communication technology also promotes individualism, or at least has the potential to do that strongly. So my kids are just getting into music. When I was a kid, I feel like this is a good kind of nostalgic talk so far, uh, but when I was a kid, I'd save up my pocket money, you call it an allowance, and I would take it on Saturdays to the store, the record store, and then I would find the album I have been thinking about for a long time, and I would get it, and I would listen to that album from start to finish, and it would be great, and then I'd listen to it again all weekend. My kids, oh, I kind of want that song. I'm going to get it without saving up anything. I'm going to put it on my phone, and then I'm going to listen to it, and I'll probably be bored of it within about the first 30 seconds, and then move on to another song. Because we are completely in control of everything, or at least that's the message we're getting. We decide what we want to do, when we want to do it, and how we want to do it. And therefore, the idea of coming into a community where there are diverse people who think differently to us, who have different expectations, who treat the world differently to us, how are we going to deal with that? It causes anxiety. What if I offend someone? What if they offend me? What if they like Drake? All of these questions constantly going round. This is an on-running joke. I don't think I've actually ever listened to Drake. Uh, <laughs> He's probably brilliant, I should, anyway. And of course, this city has its particular problems when it comes to building community. It's spread out, and everyone spends all their time in cars. I um, actually rarely drive, um, because I work from home. Uh, but now and again, when I do drive, I have about seven or 12 children in the back, ferrying them around. And it's always a great joy to me to 
whisk myself through the carpool lane while everyone else stands in standstill traffic. And I look at all these literally hundreds of cars and I go, you seriously have only got one person in each of your car? This is crazy. How isolated are you? And then I roll down the window and I honk my horn and I go, suckers, suckers. I mean, I am spending my Saturday ferrying children around various things and they're probably going to brunch with alcohol. But you know. All of which are reasons that this society, our society, we are suffering from loneliness like never before. In a recent wide-ranging survey, survey by a health insurance firm, it was found that over half, over half, more than 50% of Americans describe themselves as regularly feeling lonely. And the medical profession has said that the negative physical effects of loneliness are commensurate with suffering from obesity or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's what loneliness can do to our actual bodies. And of course, there aren't just external factors making community difficult. There are, of course, the internal ones that we all carry around with us too. Our human condition the propensity to brokenness that we have, if left undealt with, will always leave us spiritually empty. And when we're spiritually empty, we are starved of significance. We are starved of honor. We're starved of our sense of being loved. We are starved of the idea that we are actually made, adopted, created for part of a family, the children of God. And so what this happens when we are spiritually empty, it can lead us to do two things, either to feel superior and arrogant. So we try and prove ourselves, we try and prove our significance by telling people how great we are. Or it can lead us to feel inferior and without confidence because we lack self-worth, we lack that sense of being significant at all and we can feel ashamed and guilt-ridden. Now, most of us will probably sw um, swing between both of those states, but both of them are non-conducive to creating actual healthy relationships. In fact, both of them will always lead us to use people in relationships because ultimately we're trying to make up for ourselves. So, here though, then, is the extraordinary good news. We are not alone. And we are not alone in having to combat all these factors that uh, necessarily will rob us of community because Jesus, the infinite God, is creating it, has created it, and beckons us into it, into the real thing. So let me read a um, passage from Mark. This is Jesus um, at the beginning of his ministry. This is Mark 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. 
And the teacher of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying up him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people that can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So, um, quite a stark, problematic passage about Jesus talking about those who are with him and those who aren't. But first things first, because some of you will have picked up on this. Have you committed the unforgivable sin? Oh no, I know I have, I have, I have, I have, I have. Let's just clear this up quickly, okay? Because some people worry about this, the idea that they've done it and therefore they will never ever be forgiven. The unforgivable sin is this. Jesus is proclaiming his gospel, and the um, teachers of the law come to him and see what he's doing. Now, it is one thing, like uh, his mother and brothers say, which is to say he's out of his mind, casting out all of these demons. He's clearly um, a bit mentally ill. Um, But it's quite another thing to say he is Beelzebub. What Jesus has in mind here by what he says is these are people who are seeing him do God's work in the most plainly and obvious ways possible. They can see it with their own eyes, and they, so hard-hearted are they, are saying, no, this is not what is happening. Something else is happening, and it's not even something neutral. It is something negative. I'm going to assign this to the devil. So it's not so much like the teachers are blind. They are, in fact, in complete Um, possession of all the facts. They are clearly seeing what is happening. They are seeing God move through Jesus and his spirit. They are seeing that this is godly, and they are choosing in that moment hard-heartedly to say, that is not what is happening. This is happening. They are cutting their nose off to spite their face. They are acting against what they actually believe and assigning it to the devil. So, have you ever done that? Good. You haven't done the unforgivable sin? You're fine. Just carry on in life. You'll be okay. By its very nature, if you're asking, have I done the unforgivable sin? You haven't. Okay? Good. It's the ones who aren't asking that. Now you've got a problem. No, I'm joking. I hope that clears things up. Back to community. Firstly, the character of community that Jesus forms, and then secondly, the function it performs. The character, it is restorative and redemptive. So, Jesus called them over and began to speak to them in parables, verse 23. How can Satan drive out Satan? Jesus is making the point that he is getting rid of evil. I um, read an article about Michael Jackson recently, and... um, 
I don't want this to be heard as me excusing any behaviour, recent revelations, but it, it was interesting to, to hear something of the background of his um, childhood. And it referenced an interview that Michael did with um, Oprah in 1993, where facts about his childhood first came to light. He talked about how terrified he was of his father, Joe Jackson. In fact, he was so scared of him that whenever his father returned home after a day's work, Michael would vomit. That's how scared he was. And in 2003, Joe Jackson made this bizarre comment when he was accused of beating Michael. He said, um, I whipped him with a switch and a belt. I never beat him. You beat someone with a stick, but I whipped him with a switch and a belt. He used to attend all of uh, Michael's rehearsals and hold that very same belt in his hand so that whenever Michael made a mistake, he would then go, be able to go and whip him. And on one occasion, uh, Joe Jackson wanted to teach his children a lesson because they'd left the windows open at night. And so he put on a mask in the dead of night, ran into their rooms and shouted at them. And Michael suffered from a... Um, crippling fear of being abducted for the rest of his life. Now, this is just one story of hundreds of stories of dysfunction, family dysfunction. And it's often caused by fathers, but it can be caused by mothers or grandparents or siblings or friends or strangers. And the scars, let us admit, they run deep. Now, I'm a parent, and I am in no way perfect. It's good for all of us to admit that our parents are not perfect either. Now, for some of us, it will have been abundantly obvious. But for all of us, it's good to acknowledge what they're like. Most parents do try to do their best, and they still screw it up. But some don't. This can cause seemingly immovable barriers to entering into any sort of family. Why would I want to be part of a family, even if you're telling me it's God's good family, if my experience of family has only caused pain? And it also distorts any ability to make um, relationships as well with anyone, not just as part of a godly community. But Jesus comes to destroy all the destructive effects of the past. Verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Jesus has tied up the devil and all evil. And with the devil tied up, he is plundering all that destructive work. The lies that you were told, he's plundering them. The things that were stolen from your life, he is plundering them. All the ways in which the negative experience that you had that robbed you of something, that when it happened, it felt like something was lost forever. Jesus is plundering all of that and restoring everything to you that you deserve, that you should always have and should never have been taken from you because that's what he does. Jesus' fight with evil begins at the beginning of his ministry 
and it, of course, ultimately ends at the cross and the resurrection. And since the beginning of time, all of us have followed in that story of Adam of Eve and chosen independence from God. Adam and Eve's sin wasn't disobedience, ultimately. It was independence. But we're made for him. We're not full without him. And he wants to return us to him. So we may, many of us, not laboring under any of these really negative effects like the Jackson family or anything else, we may have had pretty easy uh, and happy experiences of life. But the same is true of every single one of us. We're never going to be fully ourselves. We're never going to be fully the people that we sense that we could be without the family that we were created for. So our efforts to define ourselves outside of him by saying, hey, look at the money in my account, look at the, um, uh, the jobs I've got, look at the people I hang out with, look at my beauty, look at my success, look at my uh, relationships, all the ways in which we do that. Ultimately, what we're saying is, love me because I'm like this. Love me because I do this. Love me because. And Jesus hangs on the cross and just says, I love you because you're mine, and no other reason. So his community is redemptive, and it's restorative, and it's united. 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Now, Jesus isn't really talking about houses here. As his contemporary listeners would have heard, he is talking about the temple. As soon as the house is mentioned, he's talking about the temple. And what he's saying is the temple, this thing that stands at the very core of Israel, at the core of God's people, it is divided, and it's divided over me. Either you're with me or you're without me. Either you recognize me as the one we've been waiting for or you don't. And what he is saying is that I, the one true Israelite, the perfect one, the one who is... um, prophesied to come, I am uniting everything around me. Not around a theology or a belief, not around a shared goal or a purpose, not around a system of government or a way of organizing society, but around a broken body. So if you consider any other community that you could be part of, there are relatively weakly bonded communities like sports clubs or um, people who get together to listen to the same sort of music. Uh, They're kind of, um, they work, but they're pretty weak. Then there are stronger communities that are organized around deeply held beliefs like religious organizations or political parties, those sorts of things. And there are other groups of community that are uh, stronger even than that, which are organized around shared um, formational and powerful experiences, like going to war with people or like surviving a natural disaster. These fill us um, with a sense of belonging beyond, you know, there are a million and one buddy movies, right, about an odd group of people who then go on some um, extraordinary exploration and they get through it and they risk death, but they make it through and then they are lifelong uh, uh, bonded people. What the gospel says is the strongest community that we will ever, ever, ever know is the one based on the supernatural recreating experience of God's forgiveness, of God's adoption, of God's love for you, 
of him beckoning you in and healing you and restoring you. And it, what, it's what means, sorry, it's, I uh, can't get my thoughts straight. Just create a sentence in your head and then say it. It's why it means that all differences that the world throws out along the lines of social background, economic background, racial, sexual, any other division that we could come across, they are destroyed in the light of Jesus and what he does because Christians are people who look around at other people and go, you are just the same as me, aren't you, really? In the same boat. And therefore, of course, I will respond to you as Jesus responds to you because Jesus has responded to me in that way and I understand. Um, I had a guy who, um, he actually set up a huge Christian organization. It's called Christians in Sport. And uh, it basically deals with high-level athletes uh, down to just sort of grassroots athletes around the world. And because he was um, brought up in a particularly kind of conservative church, he used to only recruit people if they would be able to sign his, just his very own statement of faith. He'd come up with his own statement of faith because he obviously knows exactly what Christianity is. And he'd written this statement of faith and said, you can only be part of this organization if you, write it, if you sign it off and you agree to this. And he would say, you know, 95% of people wouldn't be able to do that. But he knew that he had the right ones. Anyway, having done this for 30 to 40 years, he said, I realized that this was totally, totally counterproductive, totally useless, and in, in fact, incredibly arrogant. Now, I recruit people on the basis of, can they ask the, answer the question in the positive, do you love Jesus? He says that as a result, the effectiveness of his team, the effectiveness of their work has exploded because people are being treated like people and because the community of God is a diverse community where really we're all after the same thing and it's only one thing, it's Jesus. Which brings me on to the final point, the function of community. Christian community is not just about building fellowship and relationships. Friends are very important. We all need them. We could all probably do with more of them. And we should get them in our Christian community. But it's much bigger than that. Community is actually the context out of which our whole lives as Christians are made to function. It's the place where we counter culture. It's the place where discipleship happens, and it's the place where our character is formed and even where we meet with and experience God. So in terms of affecting the wider Christian world, sorry, the wider world, Christian community goes beyond just fellowship and friendship. It is, like I said, to counter culture. What we do when we do community properly is we give the world an example of a bunch of people who would never normally be in the same room together, never normally form relationships, but having the deepest relationships and showing the world something quite different and quite radical and quite life-giving with regards to things like sex, with regards to things like money, with regards to things like power and how we deal with it. We show the world actually what these things, how these things should actually be treated. Let's all have a think about sex for a bit. Because it's sexy. Don't think about it too much. 
you're in church, remember. Let's have a think about sex for a bit. In Christian community, what the people do when it comes to sex is they refuse to, on the one extreme, idolize it and make it into this horrible God, as a lot of culture does. But on the other side, they refuse to be in fear of it, as traditional religious culture is. Treat it as it's supposed to be. Whilst also showing love as opposed to hostility or fear to anyone who has different ideas about sex at all. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If that's actually how everyone treated sex, and I know we don't do it very well, but wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be life-giving and freeing? Neither idolization and worshipping it, nor fear of it, and everything done with love and acceptance rather than hostility and fear. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's what the church is for. That's what Christian community is for. And the same is true of how we treat money. The same is true of how we treat power, of influence, of people. This is what the world's always needed. And he chooses us, the weak ones, the broken ones, to actually do it. In terms of becoming more the people we were created to be, in terms of growing up into the mature versions of ourselves that we're supposed to be, the problem has been our individualistic culture in the West has taken the commands and the ethics of the Bible and made them entirely um, about individuals. But they were never about individuals. So when God says, do not murder, we, because of our individualistic Western culture, can think, well, he's saying that because he doesn't like murder and murder is bad. Now, of course, both of those things are true, but that's not why he's saying it. He's saying it because murder destroys community. And the same is true of greed, and the same is true of malice, and the same is true of lust, and all these other things. They destroy community, and God has come to create community, to create a body of people together. And so whenever we read the ethics of the Bible, we need to see it in the context of community. And when we come into community, we can actually become the people we're created to be. Consider my selfishness. Actually, consider your selfishness for a second. Consider how selfish you are as a person. If you have no interactions with other people, if you never actually see other people, you could carry on throughout your life having no idea how selfish you are. Now, you might not be selfish at all, but you wouldn't know because you've never come across another person with which to show your either lack of selfishness or your full selfishness too. Okay, let's do it positively. Consider your generosity. If you never spend any time with other, uh, other people, you ha never have an example to meet their needs, show generosity to them, actually be the person you're created to be. And the same is true for every aspect of Christian character and behavior. We need people because it allows us to become the people we're created to be. Also, they can tell us when we're not. Last bit, and then we're done. It's where we counterculture, it's where we grow, and finally, it's actually where we fully experience God. We actually need people to show us the fullness of God. Because we won't get it by ourselves. Now, I've 
um, done a couple of degrees. I spend most of my time um, thinking about God, reading about God, um, uh, doing theology, reading the Bible, those sorts of things. But none of it comes close to a conversation with my wife or to hear about how she has experienced God, or to discuss God with her, or to hear her answers to prayer, to hear her stories of God, because God is a person, and we're supposed to relate to him as a person. And so we need one another to actually show us what God is like. We need to hear other people's perspectives. We need to hear other people's experiences because then we will get a full picture of God and we will experience him in a much more full way. So you've got to have community. You know it. I know it. We all know it. Various things fight against it, but you've got to have it. So um, let's sing a song. Probably not about sex or community. Uh, but let's sing a song. And then I want to tell you um, a couple of ways in which you can be part of community, if that's all right. But let's stand and sing this song.